This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Glishich, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Catherine Bowers about her new book, Writing Fear, Russian Realism and the Gothic, published by University of Toronto Press. Now, Catherine, or Katya, um, is an associate professor within the Department of Central, Eastern and Northern European Studies at the University of British Columbia. Uh, Katya is an expert in Russian literature and culture, and I'm very excited to talk about Russian uh, fear today, writing Russian fear today with her. Katya, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eva. It is my pleasure to be here. Katya, I wondered if we could start by um, you telling us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. So I am, um, as Eva said, I am an associate professor of um, Slavic studies at the University of British Columbia. And my area of research expertise is Russian literature and culture of the long 19th century. So that includes kind of the late 18th century and up until about 1920. Um, And that's also kind of the span of this book, um, which goes from about 1790 to about 1911, I think is the latest thing in it. Um, And my work generally focuses on a couple of main themes. Um, I'm very interested in genre, narrative, and the way that novels are formed or created. Um, That took me to Dostoevsky. Um, I've co-edited several edited volumes on Dostoevsky's works, including um, Dostoevsky 200, The Novel in Modernity with Kate Holland, which was published in 2021 for Dostoevsky's Bicentenary. Um, And I've also co-edited with Kate Holland and Connor Doak. um, What's it called? (laughs) That's embarrassing. Um, It is called A Text and Context, A Dostoevsky Companion, which was published... Um, with Academic Studies Press in 2018. Um, And I've also, I'm interested in things like um, information technologies. So the way that um, information transmits through networks within the 19th century, including the way that publications transfer and circulate, um, which was very helpful in writing my Gothic book. Uh, I go into a lot about publication histories there. Um, And another thing that I'm really interested in, which I guess I'll talk about a little bit later, um, is environmental humanities, which is the focus of my new book project. Terrific. Um, Now, we're going to talk about writing fear today, which examines Gothic realism. um, And you describe this as a hybrid genre that developed in Russian literature during the 19th century. Um, Can you tell us what is Gothic uh, realism and, and how did you come about this field of this this um, area of research? 
Sure. Um, so Gothic realism is, it feels kind of almost like uh, two areas of uh, literary studies that don't really fit well or don't really sit well together. Um, the Gothic is a genre that um, we often associate with uh, the supernatural, but it doesn't always relate to the supernatural. Um, but the things that it does relate to are um, the the kind of spooky texts that create a sense of fear, anxiety, and dread in the reader. Um, and that is often achieved through um, settings like, for example, haunted a haunted castle or um, a mysterious monastery. Um, and there's often a sense of some kind of wrong wrongdoing or taboo being broken um, that takes place that kind of permeates these texts. Um, realism, on the other hand, literary realism is a genre that is very much concerned with prosaic life. So the life of the everyday. Um, and when you think about a haunted monastery and everyday life, unless you happen to be a monastic ghost, they don't really fit well together, right? Um, and so what Gothic realism does is it uses the narrative devices, tropes, um, and the kind of narrative structure of Gothic novels that create that buildup of fear to describe the everyday in a way that is affectively um, impactful on the reader. So what I mean by that is the way that um, the reader might be reading about something that would be quite dry without those descriptive elements, but with the Gothic narrative force uh, propelling the realist reader forward, the realist reader will feel fear in places where the author intends that the reader should feel fear or should feel anxiety or should feel some kind of permeating sense that something um, that something is going on that isn't quite right or is transgressive even. Um, and so Gothic realism... Gothic realism is a way that I and several other scholars have have used to denote this um, these particular moments that you find occasionally in realist texts. Um, I got into this study uh, when I was a graduate student because um, I was studying for my comprehensive exams. The comprehensive exams at my university when I was in grad school um, involved me. I was basically given a long list of texts to read and I was procrastinating reading them. I really loved reading Gothic novels. And so I was reading a lot of Gothic novels. Um, and then finally I said to myself, you know, okay, I got to stop reading these fun novels and I need to get back to reading for my comprehensive exams. And when I started reading for my comprehensive exams, what I began to notice was that the Gothic was everywhere. Um, and I at first thought that I was, you know, I'd just been reading too many Gothic novels and I was just seeing the Gothic everywhere. But when I started analyzing and digging a little deeper, I noticed that um, it there was a surprising amount of Gothic. And when I started in, in realist texts, in romantic texts, in texts that, I, that are not necessarily identified as Gothic. Um, and so when I started um, trying to put together what Gothic was doing there, I couldn't find any kind of scholarly response to why there was so much gothic in these texts that I was reading. Um, the gothic scholarship um, or gothic scholarship in my field, Russian literary studies, um, is fairly small. Um, unlike in English studies, for example, uh, there are not that many scholarly works on Russian Gothic or on Slavic Gothic. There are a few, there are more now. Um, we've recently had more published. But when I was a graduate student, there were maybe, I don't know, five 
published, um, which, and they were mostly focused on um, works that could generically be identified as Gothic, and sometimes then also Dostoevsky, but not not so much um, the many authors where I was seeing Gothic elements appear that um, are not traditionally identified as Gothic. And so this study came out of me trying to make sense of that. Um, and yeah 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 i, I think uh, many of our listeners yeah will be recognize themselves in reading stuff that they, they shouldn't be reading instead of their <laughs> work and it's wonderful when you can literature <laughs> exactly when you can uh, put those two together you know your research and the stuff that you are reading when you shouldn't be <laughs> reading them um can you tell us a little bit about the beginning of gothic literature in in uh, russia i mean what, what did russian readers read um how did they first engage with this form of literature or type of literature so um as we all probably know um many russian readers in the late 18th century were not necessarily reading predominantly texts in the russian language um so they would read french texts they would read german texts they would read some english texts but mostly english texts translated into french um and this was the first way that Gothic novels came into Russia um, in translation and, or yeah, English novels translated into French basically. Um, and it wasn't until, so, so the first Gothic novels were published in England. The first one was in 18. Um, the first one was in 18. I want to say 67. Um, no, 1767. I'm off by a century. 1767. And uh, so the first Gothic novel, Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto, published in 1767. And then later in the 18th century, the 18th century, particularly in the wake of the French Revolution, you had a number during and in the wake of the French Revolution, you had a number of other texts published. Um, And it wasn't until the 1790s that Gothic novels began to be published in Russian translation in Russia. Um, So you had the first three of them were The Old English Baron by Clara Reeve, Vatek by William Beckford, and Sophia Lee's The Recess, um, which were published between 1792 and 1794. Um, and these were really the start of a kind of Gothic boom in Russian publishing. But what you'll notice is that what you'll notice about them is that they are all um, books that were translated from English into French and then translated from French into Russian. Um, and that, that kind of transmission through France was very common. Um, in 1801, the first uh, Anne Radcliffe novel was published in Russian translation. Um, and Anne Radcliffe was a wildly popular writer in Western Europe. Um, she's an English writer. Her first uh, novel, um, The Castles of Athlone and Dunbane, was published in 1790, I want to say. And after The Castles of Athlone and Dunmain, she went on to write several other Gothic novels. Her most famous one is is, um, The Mysteries of Udolpho, which was published in 1794 in English translation. And this was translated into French and became like a runaway European bestseller um, for the time. Um, Anne Radcliffe received amounts unheard of for her novels, uh, like 500 pounds, 800 pounds for her new novels. And this was a considerable fortune at the time. Um, And so 
when Radcliffe was first translated into French and then into Russian, published in Russia, um, that's when Gothic novels really took off in Russia. And they became so popular that publishers realized that they could sell more novels, whether they were Gothic or not, simply by putting Anne Radcliffe's name on the book as a as the, the um, as the author. And also translators realized that it was quicker for them to write novels with Anne Radcliffe's name on it than to translate Gothic novels. Um, and so you have this curious phenomenon of Radcliffiana, which is a corpus of novels that are not necessarily by Anne Radcliffe, but that were all published under Radcliffe's name and that have become associated with Radcliffe, who becomes synonymous with Gothic in the um, like 1800 to 1810 kind of area or kind of time. Um, other Gothic novels were published uh, around this time as well. Um, and these were all, again, translated. So uh, Matthew Lewis is the Monk, which was translated from English into French, from French and then published in Russia and published in Russia under Anne Radcliffe's name. Um, Regina Maria Roche, Roche's Children of the Abbey, which was translated into French, published in Russia. Um, Melmoth the Wanderer, again, translated in French, published in Russia. And these were all um, around this same time. So Russian readers, Russian readers would have been um, being inundated with Gothic novels being available for sale at booksellers. Um, At the same time, there are a lot of romantic works that were being published around this time uh, and all around the same time because there was a lag with translation for when things would come out when they became popular in Russia. Um, So you have a peculiar situation in which these Gothic novels... Schiller's play The Robbers, which was from the, um, I think, 1770s, 1780s. Um, Georges Sand's novels, which were published in France in the 1830s. Charles Dickens' novels, also from the 1830s. Balzac from the 1830s. They're all being published around the same time. So they create a kind of um, ecology where certain themes of were certain themes uh, that instill kind of dread, suspense, mystery, um, a hint of the supernatural. These all appear around the same time and become associated with Gothic for Russian readers. Um, And at this, in addition to this um, transnational, international uh, publishing situation circumstance that you have happening, um, you also have Russian writers writing in the Russian language who are influenced by it and begin to produce their own works that are indebted to the Gothic. Um, the first of these was Karamzin, Nikolai Karamzin, who wrote two Gothic tales, 1794-1795. Um, the Island of Bornholm uh, is often called the first, Goth- the, the first Russian Gothic work. It is perhaps the most famous one. Um, and then you also have other writers like uh, Vasily Narezhny, um, and of course, uh, Vladimir Odovsky later in the 19th century. Um, you have Pushkin, Gogol, who are writing very Gothic-influenced works like uh, The Queen of Spades, for example, or um, The Portrait by Gogol. Um, and these all uh, sort of brought Gothic into uh up into what we would call higher brow literature um, in Russia. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting how these texts kind of move through um, these different translations, but also are associated with different authors. Um, 
and slowly write premiere, uh, Russian Russian writer um, as well. Um, and your book really opens with this examination um, of the use of Gothic elements in the text that we don't normally associate with Gothic literature, in- including Pushkin's uh, Onegin and, and Gogol's Dead Souls. Um, can you talk about the role that these Gothic elements play in these texts? Why do authors reach for, for this um, tool, I guess? So... Pushkin and Gogol are interesting. Um, well, Pushkin and Gogol are interesting. I should say that. I'm a 19th century literary scholar. Literary scholar, I feel like I need to say that. Um, but one of the things that I find really interesting about the Gothic specifically in the works of Pushkin and Gogol is that Pushkin and Gogol both wrote works that are generically identifiable as Gothic. As I mentioned before, The Queen of Spades, um, The Bronze Horseman to some extent by Pushkin, um, for Gogol, you have the portrait, um, the overcoat to some extent, and so they're a V, of course, um, and so they are very familiar with what Gothic convention is. They play with this a lot. Um, Pushkin even writes in his Tales of Balkan, he has a um, like a Gothic spoof called The Undertaker, Grabovshik, um, which is really very entertaining and it plays a lot with gothic expectation and reader expectation within these gothic uh, texts um, but when Pushkin and Gogol set out to write novels for example um, Pushkin's Eugene Onegin and Gogol's Dead Souls um, these are would not be considered to be gothic novels by any stretch of the imagination um, but the gothic elements do appear there and they play quite an important role I think um, and one of the things that they do is they they play with readers expectations when they encounter identifiably gothic tropes um, and this allows Pushkin and Gogol I believe to or as I've analyzed to embed um, kind of hidden meanings within certain parts of their work. Um, so one example of this is the dream sequence in uh, Eugene and Yegin, Tatiana's Dream. And Tatiana's Dream, um, she's been reading or she's been listening to kind of like um, stories and she gets... She has this dream in which she's in the forest and she's being chased by a bear and various things happen and she ends up at this kind of satanic party. Um, and Onyegin is there, dream Onyegin, and um, then she wakes up. Uh, after After um, dream Onyegin shoots dream Lyansky, um, which kind of foreshadows what eventually um, happens in the novel. Um, spoilers, I guess, if anyone's listening and hasn't read Eugene and Yegan. So um, this chapter is interesting for many reasons. Um, but one of the things that you don't really notice about it when you're reading it is that the epigraph to the chapter is from um, Vasily Zhukovsky's uh, Svetlana. And Svetlana is a Gothic ballad, which is about Svetlana, um, who... Uh, her fiancé dies and then comes back from the dead. And so she has this undead fiancé. And the Gothic ballad is about her various experience with the undead fiancé. And so the the Gothic ballad Svetlana is not ironic. But in Eugene and Yegin, when Pushkin uses that Gothic ballad as an epigraph, it is ironic um, in the sense that it signals to the reader that that this chapter is going to be Gothic. 
right? Um, and when the reader then enters into this Gothic world, um, the, it's a classic chase scene. It takes place at night. Um, there are co- kind of classic Gothic tropes of going through the forest at night, um, the mysterious bear. And the, the fear and anticipation that is built up is constantly undermined through Pushkin's prose, um, or I guess Pushkin's poetry and prose. Prose poetry. Anyway, um, but what what ends up happening with this chapter is that um, at the end of Tatiana's dream, Tatiana herself is very unsettled, and the reader also becomes very unsettled um, through the the kind of dramatic and violent end of the dream, um, which wasn't necessarily expected because previously that that expectation of fear um, or of some kind of gruesome effect was constantly undermined or constantly um, exploded, right? Where it's it's kind of like, you know, you build up with a balloon, like the fear and the tension, and then you poke it with a pin and it deflates and you kind of breathe a sigh of relief. But at the end of the at the end of the dream, there there isn't really a sigh of relief. She wakes up and she's deeply unsettled. And that it shows how Pushkin is playing with his reader, but also unsettling his reader and preparing the reader for eventually the dual sequence that comes later in the novel. It, it, it's interesting how these um, elements are inserted at particular moments in, in, in these texts. Um, and uh, yeah, as you say, they come with already an experience of playing around with this, this genre and uh, apply these um, uh, strategies right across these texts um, that, that we don't think about right in, the, in these terms necessarily. Um, at least uh, us who don't read <laughs> Gothic novels regularly. Yeah. One of the one of the interesting things about Gothic fiction in the Russian context is that everybody in the 19th century, in the early 19th century anyway, but also in the later 19th century, was reading with these novels or they were so pervasive in popular culture that even if they weren't reading the novels, they knew what the tropes were. They knew what to expect from one of these novels. It's kind of like, um, you know, today, if we pick up a, I don't know, like the Da Vinci Code or something, we know what to expect from it, even if we haven't read it. Like if someone mentions, oh, the Da Vinci Code is this, you know, or, oh, this kind of like adventure with clandestine codes and things, you have an understanding of what that kind of novel is, or you have an understanding of what the romance genre is, for example, um, without having read a romance novel just from popular culture, portrayals of it, discussions of it, and the same the same for 19th century Russians with the Gothic. And so this was something that writers were able to really exploit, this generic expectation that readers understood what would happen just from a couple of tropes or from a couple of descriptive passages of language. And they'd say, aha, we're in the Gothic. This is a familiar literary space. Yeah, it's fantastic to understand that context a little bit better. Um, Now, you mentioned just a little bit on on, uh, these mysterious landscapes and and, uh, that kind of are woven through this text. And obviously we do associate Gothic genre with these images, especially I'm, I'm a, a, visual, I'm a scholar of visual arts originally. And to me, that kind of immediately goes to, you know, German romantics and those. Casper um, David Friedrich. Yeah, exactly. That's the kind of first association we have. And that is predominantly right, focused on those those mysterious, you know, sublime landscapes and uh, images, you know, abandoned castle, forests, wilderness. Um what is Russian Gothic, um, how does Russian Gothic realism engage with, with landscape or countryside, as you noted in your book mm-hmm. as well? Um, so the Gothic genre um, 
as Eva mentioned, the Gothic genre is really concerned with oftentimes the setting and the setting is something mysterious. It evokes the historical. It, it is intended to create an atmosphere of fear, dread, anxiety in the reader. Um, but also there is a sense of the sublime that can come out at times. And this kind of could, um, almost seesaw effect switching between the mysterious and the fearful and the sublime creates a kind of um, unsettling uh, experience for the reader in terms of landscape. Um, Within Gothic realism, obviously the landscapes have to be prosaic, right? The landscapes are the landscapes of the everyday. And so instead of an abandoned castle or instead of a forest, um, you have uh, the Russian field, right? Um, You have uh, farmland, you have um, the city, and the way that Gothic realism plays with these landscapes is it takes the tropes or the descriptors of those Gothic landscapes that we associate, the abandoned castle, and grafts them onto um, the cities. So, for example, you have um, Nikolai Nikrasov, who wrote a sketch called, a physiological sketch called Russian Corners, um, which was published in the 1845 um, Physiology of Petersburg album, and the this physiological sketch takes readers into a tenement. So it's a kind of decrepit tenement, very unsanitary, but it uses the language that would be used to describe like a Gothic dungeon to describe this tenement. So you have spattered blood stains on the walls, and only afterwards does Nikrasov tell us that those spattered stains are from people killing spiders on the walls, right? Um, but the the idea of this kind of dingy space where you have, um, it's dark, it's labyrinthine, you have blood stains on the walls, mysterious stains on the walls, um, that, that experience is so evocative for readers because they they immediately see it as something fearful or something that where, where mystery and transgression kind of lurks. Um, and it's true that Nikrasov is using this to expose kind of urban poverty and the problems of um, the problems of social degeneration within the, the modern urban space. But um, he does this through using descriptors that could be just as well applied to an 18th century abandoned castle, right? Um, Similarly, Turgenev, who writes um, very beautifully, lyrically in his sketches from a hunter's album about the Russian countryside, has several moments in the sketches where the hunter, from a, the hunter, um, who's the narrator, uh, finds himself in a situation where he's uncertain or he's fearful about um, what will happen. Um, often, when night falls. And so the the kind of lyrical, beautiful countryside becomes um, becomes a space where the mysterious can happen. Um, Turgenev at one point describes a clearing in a wood as a place where you know witches could gather, um, which seems very strange when you think about early realist texts. I mean, obviously no witches are gathering here, but um, Turgenev is, has this way of evoking this through his description for the reader, which again creates this sense of um, mystery, of possible transgression, of uncertainty in the reader 
who experiences it, um, which plays on, it sort of transfers the fear of the narrator to the, to the reader, right? Which makes the work more impactful. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I really like some of your descriptions of the use of the city and the city as a set of, of, of Gothic uh, storytelling um, in your book. But um, I guess I, I want to talk a little bit about your connection of, in, in your book, connection with the photography that you highlight. Um, and, you know, in 19, in sorry, 1840s, uh, we see this emergence of the so-called natural school in Russian literature. Um, and you know that in part, this is inspired by the birth of photography and that uh, this type of literature seeks to represent life as it is by mimicking this, as you put it, the effect of the objective uh, camera. Um, and you would think that, you know, where would be the space here for Gothic elements? Uh, but they, they are there. Um, can you tell us what is this relationship between this new realist aesthetic uh, and, and the Gothic in, in Russian literature? So one of the things that the natural school tried to do was to describe life as verisimilitudinously as possible. So as uh, to describe settings with as much, um, for lack of a better word, like realism as possible. Um, and the thing about these kind of realist depictions and here I'm using, you can't see me, but I'm using heavy air quotes around the word realist. Um, what The thing about these kind of realist, heavily air quoted descriptions is that um, they are dry. So a, a realist description um, for a, someone in the natural school um, and thinking of physiological sketches as the beginning of the natural school, um, they are originally devoid of, for example, adjectives. And so in order for the reader to better understand, I mean, you can say, okay, I descended into a room and this is what I saw, right? Um, but if you descend into a room and this is what you saw, unless you're using descriptive language that allows the reader to also um, make a connection between what you saw and something that the reader is familiar with, at least in their imagination, um, that that description that you've made is is flat, right? Whereas the camera allows the reader to immediately have the entire context. So one of the things that the Gothic allows, just as other narrative modes that writers are um, working with during this period, um, one of the things that the Gothic allows is a way to connect affect with affect with an A, with um, the effect with an E of the description. So a way to tie affect and context together with a description that might otherwise feel very flat to the reader. Um, one, of the, one of the quotes that I really love is, um, one of the quotes that I really love is from a book about Turgenev. Um, Turgenev's uh, and I'm forgetting who wrote it now, um, which is kind of embarrassing, but I will think of it. Oh, it's by Elizabeth Cherish Allen. And one of the things that she says is that Turgenev, who was also writing in the 1840s and writing these kind of sketches, um, was looking for not just hunting in sketches from a hunter's album for um, not just hunting for description, but hunting for a way of creating description that enables the reader to um, connect with what what he's doing. And I think that, that that idea of hunting for a way of describing or hunting for a way to depict um, things is, 
is very apt for uh, basically all of the writers of the 1840s. Yeah, look, I was thinking about yeah, I was thinking reading this this uh, section of of your study uh, actually made me think about early photography and actually how gothic it is um, because of the long exposures and the photographers playing around with this uh, you know superimposition and these ghost figures, right? I sort of uh, well, we do associate kind of immediately um, realism and photography, right? Life as it is. Actually, these early photos were quite quite spooky and eerie as, as um and I, yeah and there's a very yeah interesting connection that you make that that it doesn't again it doesn't really come um yeah naturally when you think about this this uh, subject um so one, one of the oh sorry I, I wanted to say that this is one of the things that's really interesting if you look at lithography like urban lithography from earlier in the century um because one of the things that um one of the things that some lithographers tried to do when they were engravers tried to do when they were when they were depicting um, urban spaces was uh, so in the 18th century you had this sense of an empty city so it was just the buildings or just the streets and not and like the the panorama the perspective and in the 19th century then um, lithographers tried to fill the spaces with people tradespeople people going about their um, people going about their uh, their day-to-day life. Um, and I feel like photography, when it first started, um, was a similar thing. Like, it was that people were not able to smile because they couldn't hold the smile for long enough to be exposed. Or, like, you have those images of Paris where there, there are no people because the people couldn't hold still long enough in a crowd setting to, to create... Yeah, that's right. Exposures for so long, right? Yeah, exactly. And so it is uncanny. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, We were focusing in in, um, uh, a portion of your book on uh, the question of um, uh, women's position, right? And and the question of of rights of women. Um, And you know that the rise of Gothic writing in England and France was linked to debates about the rights of women uh, this period. what is the situation in Russia? Does this link exist in, in there as well? So the link does exist to some extent, but it's not as clearly demarcated as it is in England and France. So in England and France, for example, so in England, for example, um, you have Mary Wollstonecraft, who's a major feminist thinker or pre-feminist thinker, feminist thinker, however you want to call her. Um, and she is, she's written, of course, The Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Um, but she also is writing novels that veer sharply gothically. Um, and this becomes like Mary Wollstonecraft um, takes up the banner of writing these kind of novels because she feels very strongly that women are too sheltered um, and need to be better educated about the horrible things that can happen to them in the world, basically, um, which becomes, again, one of the rights of women being being educated enough to understand um, your position in the world and what could happen to you. Um, and so that connection where you have someone who is um, strongly connected with uh, the women's rights movement in the late 18th century and also writing Gothic novels, that does not exist in Russia. But what you do have in Russia is um, women writers who appropriate Gothic in order to um, put forward their own uh, 
to put forward their own positions on the what's called the woman question, um, which is the question of whether women should be educated or not that um, develops in critical discourse um, and in public discourse in the mid to late 19th century. Um, so the chapter in my book that talks about this examines the work of Yevgenia Tour. Um, Tour was a writer who was very popular at the time, um, 1850s, and she in the 1860s also wrote some reviews and articles that um, talk about uh, her position on the woman question. And what I find is that using the Gothic, she's able to articulate these positions or kind of almost pre-echo her later um, political positions related to women's rights um, and women's education uh, by creating um, a sense of a sense of um, transgression around uh, some of the things that happen as a result of women's limited circumstances in um, the 19th century. So for example, women's limited options for career um, or professional positions, um, women's choices or lack of choices when it comes to um, marriage, when it comes to social positions, etc. Um, and how that often creates situations in which women have no resources to draw on or like financial resources um, or are become victimized in abusive relationships. Uh, I'm interested. I wasn't really familiar with Tour's work um, at all before reading reading your study. Are these, are these texts known in, in Russia today or... Um... Are they popular at all? Yes. So there, there is, there has been a recent, um, there has been starting from about the 1970s, 1980s, there has been a resurgence in, um, and here I'm using heavy air quotes, discovering the work of lost women, lost air quotes, women writers. Um, the fact is that when those kind of academic uh, collections of Russian writers came out in the early 20th century, um, many of them published by the Soviet Academy of Sciences. Um, those editions often or very much did not include collected works of women writers. Um, they were, you know, you, you kind of have your Pushkin, Gogol, Chekhov, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and other people as well, but um, the canon did not include the collective works of women writers. Um, but beginning in the 1970s, 1980s, um, some works did come out collecting the work of women, these women writers, and um, now there's a real resurgence in scholarship around them. Um, there were some pioneering scholars particularly, um, for example, Barbara Helt and others um, who um, who began to um, find their work uh, and read it. Um, you have pathbreaking work by Jahan Geth, Geith, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, who wrote a book on Khvashinskaya and Tour um, that came out, that came out, um, a few years ago, I think maybe 10 years ago, um, which uh, went into Tours archive a lot. Um, and Hilda Hugenbaum um, has really done amazing work in making the archive of Tour available to scholars to 
uh, use. And so right now, actually, there's a program at the um, University of Illinois Library that is trying to digitize the um, trying to digitize and collect the digitized files of the archives of various women writers, including Tour, um, the Kwasinski sisters, and others, uh, so that they can be more readily adapted and used by scholars. Um, there's also a lot of new translations coming out of into English of works by women writers. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Look, I'm uh, reading your your study. I um, actually <laughs> went back to some of these texts and pulled them out. That they're now on top of my reading uh, pile. And I, I think tour will be. Yeah, tour will be definitely something that I. Tour I, uh, is wonderful. Yeah, she's have a wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, what? Well, it's really fascinating how your book really shows how I guess um, agile. Gothic is. I mean, different things that you can use it for. Um, and let's move from women's uh, rights to now the world of politics, revolutionary politics, because here too we see Gothic permeating um, this period of 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 really extreme political violence in, in Russia and and terrorism, right? Emergence of terrorism and and, and political assassination um, in in European kind of political reality. Um, tell us how. Uh, these elements, these Gothic elements, become mechanism for dealing with political violence and this prevailing sense of fear in Russian um, realist texts. So, one of the one of the things about classical Gothic literature, and when I say classical Gothic literature, I mean um, these early novels that were written in England around the time of the French Revolution. Um, particularly by Anne Radcliffe and Matthew Lewis, is that they can be divided into two so-called schools. These are the school of terror and the school of horror. Um, And the school of terror are, this includes these sublime landscapes that we think of. Um, There's a real philosophical emphasis on um, fear, but also the sublime um, and on ways of thinking in the world and sort of getting beyond the fear in the world. So there is fear, there is transgression, but there's also a sense of um, a higher power that helps you through these things. Um, And this is very often associated with the works of Anne Radcliffe. But the the counterpart to this is, um, culminates in, or maybe not culminates is not the right word, um, but sort of centers on works that develop after after and influenced by um, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. So The Monk was published in 1796. It is horrific. So horrible things happen in this book. The descriptions of things, like it's the plot, the plot involves, spoilers, a monk who makes a deal with the devil. Um, He ends up accidentally seducing his sister. Like all these horrible things happen. There's one, there's one particularly graphic moment where um, a nun has been sexually assaulted and she's left to die in a tomb and she hears um, she uh, I am she, she hears the I mean, sound that of yeah, that sounds pretty horrific. <laughs> other horrible things happening next to her and at one point um, she reaches to find her dead baby who's like next to her and the dead baby has like she just pulls up like his entrails like it's it's really gruesome um, and so this this school it it's it does function in that there is fear there's anxiety there's dread all of these components 
But in the school of horror, there's also a kind of enjoyment of graphic violence. Um, And the book itself, The Monk, was written as a reaction to a lot of the violence that was witnessed as a part of experienced by people fleeing the French Revolution, um, where you would have, you know, gruesome uh, executions in the streets, um, where the casual killing was common. Um, and so this, this kind of casual, gruesome uh, experience found its outlet in works of graphic violence like this. Um, and I think that one of the ways that this comes out in um, revolutionary or writing about revolutionary terrorism is through Gothic depiction. Um, the main focus of my chapter about this uh although I, I do talk about some other things, including um, the assassination of Alexander II, for example, and other political assassinations where you have you know, people being blown up on the streets of St. Petersburg. Um, but my main focus in this chapter is on Dostoevsky's novel, Demons, um, and the, the way that you can examine corpses and the way that corpses are depicted and um, the way that corpses move through the text. Um, and I find that I find that um, it's quite interesting. Dostoevsky, of course, is against revolutionary violence, but and revolutionary terrorism. But um, the other author that I look at in this chapter, um, Boris Savinkov, is for he himself was a terrorist who helped plan political assassinations and participated in them and he also in his books that are pseudo autobiographical almost accounts of different um terrorist acts that he uh participated in um he uses gothic markers um to consider the morality of uh, the terrorist act in a way that is diametrically opposed to what Dosta- the way that Dostoevsky is using these markers. But it's interesting because they're the same markers, tropes, descriptors that are being used for both. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, a place, I guess, for Gothic uh, thinking and Gothic elements uh, within this political reality and I think you bring that forward in a really interesting way by comparing these these two um, authors um, another big theme that you explore in your book is the this theme of unhappy families right um, and they are quite common throughout Russia but obviously not just Russian <laughs> literature um, so tell us how do writers use these gothic elements to explore um, unhappy or family in decline, as you as you note. Um, so, in within Gothic literature, there there are certain master plots. The master plot, um, to use the the phrase by Katarina Clark, or to use the, the yeah Katarina Clark's expression for this, a master plot is a generic plot that is common across multiple works. Um, And one of these within Gothic fiction is the fall of the house, um, which I call it that after Edgar Allan Poe's story, the fall of the house of Usher. Um, And the idea is that it is a, a noble family that has gone into decline and through decline and degeneration, the family falls into, um, 
falls into some form of transgression or just all the members of the family die in some horrible way, something like this. And there are a number of works within Russian literature um, of the 19th century that focus on not just unhappy families, but specifically family decline, because um, in the 19th century, you had so much social upheaval, especially after the um, especially after the great reforms of the 1860s and 70s, that the social fabric of Russia was changing radically, and that destabilized the kind of backbone of the Russian um the backbone of Russian society, which was the this idea of like the kind of landed estate. Um, and that destabilization of the basic family unit became a real sense of anxiety for a number of writers. Um, in some cases, like for Konstantin Aksakov, um, who was writing earlier, so in the 1850s, um, his family chronicle, every generation of the family becomes progressively um, more and more degenerate until um, finally there's this idea of like the the child that will lead us forward to the new founding of the family at the end. Again, spoilers. Um, but then you also have um, works like, for example, Satikov Shadrin's The Family Galavlyov, which charts the decline of a noble family. Um, and they decline through various um, immoral acts um, avarice, different sins that they commit, um, greed, for example, and th- they die in the various members of the family. I mean, Saltikov Shadrin, he's a satirical writer, and they die in, the members of the Golovyov family die in particularly um, almost comedic, horrible ways. But um, overall, the way that Gothic descriptors are used there is to signal uh, the sadness, the tragedy of the death of the family, um, even through the humor, the the darkly comedic humor that uh, that um, informs so much of the text. And then you have um, Ivan Bunin's Dry Valley, Suchadol, which is about a family that it's a nostalgic account of the decline of a family from the members of the family that are left after the family has mostly disappeared. Um, and the Gothic there becomes kind of a nostalgic treatment of um, what it means for a family to decline. And it's, it's interesting to see the way that Gothic is used across these three works and across many other works within, um, within, the, Russian, uh, within the Russian literary context to think about um, declining families and declining society to some extent in the late 19th century, early 20th century. The um, I was going to say that one thing that's interesting about this chapter, so this chapter in my book um, is relatively short. I just look at these three, um, these three texts and I sort of think about uh, Svetayeva's The House of Adult Piman afterwards. But originally this chapter in my um, dissertation was the longest of all the chapters. It stretched, it was huge. And it's because this theme is so prevalent within Russian literature. There are so many writers who use Gothic elements to consider the um, fall of the house. Uh, 
Katy, this has been a fascinating conversation and I just want to thank you for this wonderful tour of um, Russian Gothic realism. As I said, for me, it, it made me really see things a bit differently and I go back to some of these texts and I hope this will be also the case for our listeners. Um, can you tell us a little bit just what you're working on the, at the moment? You noted that you're interested in a bit of an environmental uh, lens through this literature. Yes. Um, so I am very interested in the way that affect, particularly anxiety and genre coexist. And so this has led me to climate fiction, um, which taps into the anxiety that I feel like probably all of us feel related to climate change. And so what I'm interested in doing in my next book, um, this is what I'm just starting, is to look at um, narratives of climate of environmental catastrophe that could be read as examples of climate catastrophe in the 19th century um, and think really hard about the way that the genre of those works, um, if we call them climate fiction um, or cli-fi, which is this new emerging genre that's like a subgenre of sci-fi that's coming out now. If we think about these works in terms of the theoretical um, analysis of cli-fi, how do we understand our own anxiety in reading them today? Um, and so it's, it's I don't know what it will be like, but um, I'm excited to find <laughs> yeah. out. And, and look, to me, it sounds like there will be plenty of gothic <laughs> elements there as well, and, and feeling of dread, which is definitely something I think we, we all um, are feeling as at I said the moment. earlier, the gothic is everywhere. It is, yes. It, once I, that's, that's once you see I, it, I you think... can't unsee it. Uh, well, that's has certainly been the uh, effect that your your uh, study has had on me, um, and yeah, I do hope that our listeners um, uh, have a bit of a closer look. And it's as I said, it's such a such a, uh, a rich uh, lens or, or powerful lens to use to read this text through. Uh, Katya, thank you so much again for spending a bit of time with us today and talking about uh, this fascinating field of research. And we do hope to have you back with some discussion on um, cli-fi. <laughs> We will see. Thank you, Eva. It's been my pleasure to talk to you today.